Hi, everybody, and welcome to IG Notes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes to explore the work of journalists around the world. I am Donette with the IG Net team. In this episode, I interview Dr. Alyssa Richardson, an award-winning journalism instructor at the University of Southern California and the author of Witnessing Wild Black, which explores the lives of 15 mobile journalist activists who documented the Black Lives Matter movement using only their cell phones. Dr. Richardson is a pioneer in mobile journalism, having launched the first smartphone-only college newsroom in 2010 at Morgan State University. Today, she's a huge advocate for mental health, especially for Black journalists. In this episode, we talk about the effect that covering the anti-police brutality protest has on a Black journalist and their mental health, as well as the way we cover race in the media. Take a listen. Dr. Richardson, it's great to be talking to you today. To start off, how has mobile journalism and citizen journalism affected the Black Lives Matter movement? It's been invaluable. First of all, the mobile journalism piece, uh, which is near and dear to my heart, is something that's that's been paradigm shifting. This is for the first time through these devices that Black people can bear witness in real time to the punishments that are meted out against them just for being Black. So during slavery, for example, we couldn't look at each other being beaten unless we wanted to be beaten by master ourselves. If you think about lynching photographs, there aren't Black people standing in the fringes of those lynching photographs at all. They are at home, presumably huddled at home or or fleeing the city because of the massacre that was getting ready to begin. But this is the first time that Black people can look in real time and see just what happened to someone. And whereas the old newspapers used to say, about lynching victims, this person died at the hands of persons unknown for reasons unknown. That doesn't fly with this generation. We wanna know the person's name. We will say their name, we will give them a hashtag and we'll keep saying their name if we need to um, hundreds of days later. And we'll also say the name of the perpetrator. We reject this at the hands of persons unknown language. Um, This mobile journalism generation really has done wonders to putting a name and a face to the aggressor. And I think that that is unprecedented. That level of visibility and accountability has really pushed to the fore the issue of police brutality in ways that we maybe haven't had before, even after the Rodney King video. So the downside of that, though, is that many journalists get lazy when it comes to reporting these kinds of incidents, right? So they, um, for example, will just loop all these heinous videos of Black men dying, and they won't sometimes give a trigger warning or it'll be a really quick trigger warning, and it traumatizes Black people over and over again. And I argue all people. Lots of people are like, I just want to look away from these now. And that's not something that we do for white victims. When white people die, you really have to think hard about the last time you may have seen that on televised news during primetime. You really have to think back because it doesn't happen. I'm trying Um, to think right now and I can't think of anything. Can't think of anything. And, And even online, there used to be things that existed online that showed a few cases like when Daniel Pearl, who was a journalist, was beheaded. That used oh, to yeah. exist online, but that was removed quickly and rightfully so. 
And then for 9-11, there were many white victims who jumped from the buildings rather than burn inside. What kind of decision is that to make? You know, it was horrific. And there existed photographs at one point of all that gore, and they were taken offline, as they should have been. Last thing, if we think about mass shootings, like what happened in Las Vegas with the lone gunman, um, there were eventually, there were initially, I should say, pictures of and videos of white people running for their lives and dropping to the ground, never to rise again. But those have been scrubbed from the internet. So why is it that bodies of color, specifically, get to suffer the indignity of a public death? So why is it that Black people get to be on the news all the time dying, or a, La a Latino man, a, La a migrant? washes up on the shore with his baby, and that runs in newspapers. These kind of decisions are conscious, and we need to make sure that we're giving Black and Brown people the humanity they deserve in those sacred last moments of their life. So while I talk in the book about all the great things that mobile journalism has been able to achieve in terms of shifting and shaping national conversation, it has been traumatizing too, and we must recognize that the recent one with um Jacob I couldn't I couldn't watch that honestly like every time I see that I just skip it and because you know like even with George Floyd I, I didn't watch that one either because it was just you know it's too much too much. it's like becoming like a and it's becoming a constant thing so I guess to mm -hmm. me I guess that that makes me wonder for journalists who are who have to cover this who, especially like black journalists people of color mm -hmm. Who are forced to watch these videos? Who are forced to have to cover this day after day? How do you think this affects them, person, like mentally? Well, I know for the mobile journalists that I interviewed, um, they definitely have to create communities of care. And one of the things that I've heard them say often is that if they didn't have their communities to retreat to, to talk to, they likely would buckle under much of the pressure. Because you have to remember so much of what they experience is invisible to us. They receive death threats in their inbox when they wake up first thing in the morning, when they go to participate on these frontline protests to live stream or film and document it in any meaningful way. Sometimes police go up to them and, and call them by their Twitter handle instead of their given name. Um, so this constant presence, this constant feeling of surveillance um, and real surveillance, not imagined surveillance, is wearing on a lot of, of activists who do the work of journalists. And I think without that added protection of a newsroom, um, a lot of them really retreat from public view. And I think that's why we've seen so many of the people who shot the iconic video of, for example, um, Philando Castile or Alton Sterling or Eric Garner or even Freddie Gray, all of those folks who were very close to the victims, either friends or family members of them, they don't talk too much to the press anymore because that toll that it takes on them to have to relive that all of the time is immense. Um, as a matter of fact, even children aren't safe. Darnella Frazier, who recorded George Floyd's killing, um, is, is, well, she spoke of being harassed online and she stopped talking to the press uh, almost immediately after that case. I think she's only granted maybe one interview I saw um, on the internet, and then she hired an attorney and he does the speaking. So 
that trauma is real. And in many cases, I, I talk about in chapter eight of the book, the trauma that has, has claimed the life of a lot of these journalist activists. So some journalist activists um, have taken their own lives. Some have considered it, but because they had a community of care, they were able to um, kind of uh, be able to develop different coping mechanisms and overcome those bouts of severe clinical depression. And I think that it really boils down to folks realizing that Black people are human, not superhuman, just regular human. And we hurt. And the things that we see, uh, we carry with us. And when we see somebody lying on the ground who looks like us or looks like our dad or our brother, we don't dissociate ourselves from that. We immediately say, that could be my family member or that could be me. And I know a number of, for example, my um, girlfriends who tell me, girl, I can't watch any more of these videos because it feels like I'm going to have a nightmare about somebody coming in my house and doing what they did to Breonna Taylor. And when you talk about those kind of post-traumatic stress disorder kind of uh, symptoms, we don't really discuss those in terms of the Black journalists often enough. And I think that um, one thing that really made me want to discuss that or even kind of get into that um, was when I, I lost my friend. My friend Darren Simon was the only other Black person in the program with me at Northwestern during our cohort. And he is, he, I'm still talking about in the present sense, he was one of the most um, dogged reporters I've ever met, like would be the first person to file his story all of the time. We always like had to wreck a race with each other. Like the first two semesters at Northwestern, you're supposed to file a story every day and you have to do it by like three or four or something like that. And invariably, Darren was the first person done all of the time. And we were like, how do you do this? And I mean, clean copy, colorful quotes, and just the brightest smile, impeccably dressed, unflappable. And I remember we interned together at Ebony and Jet Magazine. I stayed on at Jet and he went on to Miami Herald, but we kept in touch over the years. And um, he had, you know, came to my wedding and I went to his and he just seemed like the picture of someone who would totally know how to deal with uh, trauma because he was a DART Center for Trauma fellow. You know, he was someone who had been trained um, to look at these kinds of issues and report on them and then take that mental space. But he still took his own life this year. And it's something that's been so taboo. People haven't wanted to, wanted to talk about it, especially in the Black community. It's not something that we discuss often. Um, and when Pointer, um, I think, talked about it, I think they wrote a piece about it. Or was it Richard Prince? I think it was Richard Prince that maybe wrote something about it. I saw something online because it's all a haze. But when I saw that it was confirmed, because at first we didn't know what happened, I was stunned because I thought this is somebody um, I thought would be around forever, you know, and I thought that would be an old grizzled man in the newsroom giving tips to young people. And um, that's what he did for my students at Morgan State University. I have quite a few young men who were really rough around the edges when they came in and were like, you know, how do I get an internship? And I said, you got to pass through Darren Simon School first. <laughs> and <laughs> 
I sent them to Darren and he got them their first tie and their first button up and they had their little jeans on. And I think he was at Philly in Philly at the time. And he was working for the Philly trip and he brought those guys in there with them, with him. They went on stories with him. They were just like, he is the truth. And I said, I told you guys I'd look out. So he mentored so many of my students during my time transitioning from the newsroom to the professorship. And so many people will remember him for um, just his style of dress, which I think a lot of people just think he wanted to be stylish just because. And we never discussed this, but I always thought that his dapper, you know, demeanor always was a way to make people trust him. You know, as a Black man moving through the world, as a journalist, you're knocking on strangers' doors, you're asking hard questions. And if you have that megawatt smile like Darren had, and you have your blazer and that reporter's notebook, it's disarming in terms of people being able to trust you right away. And he had that kind of personality. Um, and the last time we talked in March was two weeks before he passed away. And I asked him if he was going to go to NABJ. And he had just moved to DC from CNN. And I was like, you're doing it. You know, you work at the Washington Post now. You left CNN for the Post. Like, this has been a 20-year dream. Like, we talked about this back at Northwestern when he did his additional D.C. semester uh, about him eventually working at the Post. So he was a big brother to me. I did everything Darren did because I thought it was cool. You know, he went to South Africa and I saw his pictures and I said, bro, I got to get there. I got to go to South Africa. He's like, yes, you do. <laughs> And I remember right before I went to South Africa, he's telling me what to pack, where to go, interview questions, just the whole nine. So um, when I think about mental health, I think about how so many things were just undetectable at the time. He must have really been hurting. Um, I wonder how many other journalists are going through things like that. Um, he was my best friend in grad school. I mean, he is somebody that I talked to, he's one of those friends where if you don't talk to him for like a month or two, you can catch back up exactly where you were. And I'm really going to miss him. You know, this year at NAVJ, they had an author showcase and you had to have a journalist interview you about your book. And I had already asked Darren back in March if he would do it. And he said, of course, you know, I'm so proud of you. That's so dope that you have a book out. Amazing. And I said, okay, I'll give you more details later. And I never got a chance to, because um, two weeks later he died. And I think, you know, when I think about other friends who loved him in the industry, uh, like Tremaine Lee, I asked Tremaine to do the author's showcase with me because he and Darren were such good friends and they uh, met each other at the Times Picayune and stayed very close. And so I, did, I couldn't think of anybody but Tremaine who would be able to share that and really just nail it in terms of the questions I would have had or in the discussion I would have had with Darren. And it felt like he was in the room when we were doing that session because we could have gone all day talking about some of these things. Darren and I used to go all day talking about social justice, this and that. And it made me realize that if we don't look out for black journalists, especially journalists that are used to performing at such a high level and used to having this strength about them that others admire, then we may lose more. I don't know. And I worry about what do we do when we're quiet 
about suicide? What do we do when we're quiet about Black journalists who make that decision? And what are we doing when we're requiring journalists to enter a hostile world in terms of a place they have to cover, but also the newsroom that they're in is hostile? I don't know that was Darren's case, but I do know there was a Black LA Times hashtag this summer. I do know there was a small mutiny at the New York Times in the op-ed department. And these glimpses into what Black journalists have to face are a stark reminder that many times Black people feel like they don't belong anywhere in their own country. And writing that and living that at the same time can be such a heavy burden. We have to learn what is our threshold and do I need to look at this video this time? Do I maybe need to suggest to my editor or my producer that someone else take this on at this time? I was having a great talk with a colleague here at the Annenberg School who used to work for the New York Times. And he said, he's a black man. He said, you know what? We feel the weight of this differently because we are black journalists. And when we see old images of civil rights, you know, movement protests where black bodies are being tossed in the air with fire hoses or even current movements where we see people lying on the street because they've been shot or choked to death. We see ourselves in that. He said, but the many times the people who are not black who are in the newsroom, they're maybe sympathetic or sad about it, but it's not that same weight because they don't see themselves as the victim nor do they see themselves as the aggressor. Many of them would say, I would never choke someone to death. I would never shoot anyone to death. So that's not me. And I definitely, because I'm white or maybe because I'm whatever, fill in the blank, I don't have a target on my back in that same way. So I can kind of breathe a sigh of relief there too. So what are you left with? When you think of it that way, as a newsroom full of people who may be compassionate for a moment, but don't identify as either victim or aggressor, you're left with kind of like this, these shifts in care in terms of at the height of something really incendiary, oh, let's put this on the front page. But then as news progresses and the days wear on, maybe it recedes to the background. It recedes to the background for them, but for the Black journalist that is living it, it never recedes to the background. They are living it and writing it and filming it. And while white people, for example, may be tired of talking about it and saying, oh, we solved that back in June, is what I'm hearing a lot of people say on Twitter, Black people don't feel like any mission has been accomplished when they see that more than 100 people have been killed by police since George Floyd died. So to answer your question about what Black people should do in newsrooms, first you have to realize what you're up against. You're not necessarily up against an evil kind of nefarious spirit where people um, are, are saying mean things about these kind of stories. It's the apathy, I think, that hurts worse. It, or it's the, we've done that story already, <laughs> that hurts worse. Or how long are we supposed to spend on this story that hurts? And it's the temporary kind of care that comes from summers like we've just had that really traumatize people when they try to go feel like they have a safe space and say, okay, maybe I can pitch the story that's been on the back burner because everyone seems to care. And then eyes roll and people say, why are we still talking about this? I'm so over it. You know, that 
for, is the first step I think the journal, black journalists have to take to knowing what they're up against. And many people already know this. The second thing I would say is, to, is it's okay to take distance. Some black journalists that I've talked to during this whole summer book tour have confided in me after the camera went off, after we finished talking about the book, they just broke down. They were like, I'm so tired because I'm the only black person in the newsroom and I have to do all the black stories. Like they're not even trying to learn about my culture. I'm just assigned these, I'm thrown two, three, four times more stories than everybody else and expected to still do them well or else I'll lose my job. Who wants to lose their job during a pandemic? So, there are so many things that Black journalists are facing right now in terms of trying to perform under pressure, trying to perform in isolation. You know, newsrooms aren't meant to be in somebody's house with a ring light. You know, we're meant to be together doing this. So you've got the isolation as a factor. And then you've got this expectation that you as a Black journalist have to have hot takes for everything. And I reject that. I think that Black journalists should take a break and say, I don't have to respond to this Kenosha, Wisconsin shooting. I'm still processing George Floyd, or I'm still tapped into what's going on in Louisville with Breonna Taylor's family, or I'm still mourning Ahmaud Arbery. I still wanna know what's going on there, or any of the other many cases, and that just has to do with police brutality. We're not even talking about Black lives lost due to COVID-19. We're not even talking about, you know, all of these different climate change issues that are happening, wildfires in California raging, flooding, like all these different things that normally crop up around this time of year are compounded. And so it's unreasonable to expect Black journalists to keep going and having a business as usual kind of attitude when the world is falling apart. Do you think it's hard as a journalist to kind of like stay impartial? Um, journalists, like the number one rule is to be as neutral as possible, but this is something that affects their whole personhood and those closest to them. Do you think that it's difficult or is it even possible to cast their emotions aside when you're reporting on something so personal? No, and I don't think that it's necessary. I think that, um, the journalism that we celebrate at American journalism schools is called yellow journalism for a reason. Those folks, William Randolph Hearst and all those guys had a clear opinion and they definitely knew how they wanted to cast black people in their pages. In the research that I conducted for my book, I saw some of the most dastardly descriptions of black people in pages like the New York times where they were calling us dusky bells and all kind of racial epithets and it was done in the name of, you know, this objective journalism. I even read a news article in the New York Times that talked about um, Solomon Northrup, who, whose life is, is described in 12 Years a Slave. Well, he was a real person, and he actually, you know, took to task the people who kidnapped him, and he sued him. And in New York courts and the New York Times sneered and jeered the entire time. Who was this guy to, to have tried to do this thing? And they laughed at him and they called him all kind of names I won't repeat here. Was that objective? No, there has never been an objective press. In fact, objective is code for suitable for white readers. That's what has always been expected. Sanitize the language so that it doesn't make white readers uncomfortable. And mobile journalists are past that. They're like, you're going to be uncomfortable 
Because guess what? When someone's knee is on my neck, I am uncomfortable. When I am in a COVID you know, ward and I can't see my family and I'm 10 times more likely to get this disease than anyone else, and I'm throwing that statistic out there and being facetious, but when I'm more likely than others to get this disease, I'm uncomfortable. And so forget about your comfort. It's time to show some really ugly facts. Some things that you'd rather not discuss are going to be front and center. And that's where we are as a country. It's not that people are saying, you know, take these clear sides. It's really Black America turning the head of the apathetic and holding it in place and saying, no, you will look at this thing once and for all. And you will tell me how you feel about it. Silence is not acceptable. And it's a really bold, radical way of thinking about journalism. And one of my favorite colleagues at USC, uh, Gabe Kahn, has this really great article where he says, you know, objectivity shouldn't be the goal. Transparency should be. And he was like, we should replace objectivity, throw that out, and just be transparent about where you're coming from. What position are you writing from? And that's why I start out my book saying, look, I'm a Black woman. So yes, there's going to be some slipping into some autobiography and telling you what I feel about police brutality. I can't report on police brutality without telling you my own brushes with the law. So I'm not gonna pretend to be objective about how I feel about um, police behaving badly. Um, and I think we need more of that. We need more people who are being honest about where they're coming from. More people who are honest about what they don't know. Some people don't know what they don't know. And so they write these really horrible stories because they were afraid to ask a question. And they get dragged on social media for being tone deaf because they didn't want to ask. So I think that journalists, they really need to do away with this objectivity uh, facade. Because when I look at what's been written about my people in some of the nation's most respected newspapers, it was never objective. It always had a personal mission. So because of the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of newsrooms around the country are having to have more conversations about race and how to, you know, protect and support their um, employees of color, especially the black ones. What do you think newsrooms can do to better support their employees? That's a great question. I think newsrooms can support their employees going forward by investing in formal training. I know that the pace of newsrooms is so quick because I used to work in them, albeit briefly, because I saw the writing on the wall. And if you get a professional group to come in and conduct um, these cultural competency workshops and things like that, they can work wonders. I remember I had one at the job I really disliked on Capitol Hill. And I felt for the first time that with that third party there kind of facilitating what I wanted to say to the higher ups, that they finally understood and heard it. They were embarrassed and things did shift. You know, I did feel some improvements and I even got a raise at the end of the, the month because they were like, you know what? You're right. There is gender gaps. There are, I mean, there are gender gaps in, in uh, your wages. There are racial gaps in your wages because I'd found out about that. Um, and I think that when news organizations make those kinds of investments, it sends a very clear signal that we're not just going to put up a Black Lives Matter slogan on our site. We're not just going to do a black square on our Instagram page. We really care about this. 
And it's a lot better, a lot better effort than posting a suicide hotline after an employee has taken their life. You know, so had a lot of news organizations, for example, done that, you know, maybe we wouldn't have some of these these instances where people felt like they had no other choice. And so I think that when we think about the responsibility that newsrooms have, you must recognize that Black people are doing double duty. Not only are they walking around in their own skin every day, just trying to stay alive, be it through COVID, avoiding COVID, and avoiding the police, they're also having to do this great job um, under pressure, and many times working on stories they don't want to work on because they're being pigeonholed in some way. And so that realization that newsrooms or editors may be putting undue pressure on Black people is the first thing that needs to be recognized. The second thing is that it shouldn't be only the Black journalist's responsibility to solve these problems. Black people didn't create these problems. <laughs> and so to then put it back on the Black person and ask, what should we do to stop your oppression is ridiculously perverse. And it's unfair because in a lot of situations, we are tired of talking about it because we're like, is this really going to lead anywhere? And so it really sends a strong signal when the leader of an organization starts the conversation and really means to create systemic change. Thank you so much, Dr. Richardson, for speaking with me and for the work she does on behalf of Black journalists worldwide. This is the fourth episode in our series on journalism and mental health. Other episodes feature interviews of Anna Mortimer, journalist, therapist, and co-founder of The Mindfield, Dean Yates, a longtime journalist who is outspoken about his struggles with mental health, and Jesus Mesa, a former Carter Center fellow whose work explores the mental health challenges of Venezuelan migrants living in Colombia. You can find these episodes anywhere where you get your podcast, and be sure to leave us a rating. Follow IGNet on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to be the first to know when we release the next episode of IG Notes. And check out the website, IGNet.org, for more resources on mental health. If there's anything that we can do to help support your work, please feel free to reach out to us. Until next time, stay safe and take care of yourselves.